following message was delivered at Bible Baptist Church in Dickinson, North Dakota. In Hosea chapter 14, that's in the Old Testament with the Bible scholars, Hosea 14, and we'll begin, if you will, in verse 1, Hosea 14 and verse 1. The Bible says, Hear, O Israel, uh, return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. Take with you words and turn to the Lord, and say unto him, Take away all iniquity, and receive us graciously. So will we render the calves of our lips. Asher shall not save us, we will not ride upon horses, neither will we say any more to the work of our hands, ye are our gods. For indeed the fatherless findeth mercy. I will heal thee, I will hear their backsliding, I will love them freely, for my anger is turned away from him. I'd like to preach on the subject, the Lord's exhortation of his love, in verse 4, where he says, I will love them freely. I will love them freely. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for that gracious and good love to us. And Father, we're not worthy of the least of thy mercies. Father, we're not worthy of any of thy And yet, Father, we know that thou hast chosen to love people, chosen to love sinners unworthy of thee. And Father, God, thank you for that. God, thank you for being willing to look down from heaven in the midst of all the sin and see a sinner helpless and need a Savior. I pray, God, as we consider this subject this morning, God, thank you that uh, even when we've been saved and we mess up, even when we backslide, God, thank you for still loving us. Father, have your way in every heart. Father, I pray, God, that you'd encourage and strengthen us as we consider this love, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, here, the Lord's exhortation of his love. Now, <clears throat> God is speaking uh, to Israel through the prophet Hosea. If you look with me to Hosea chapter 1, and uh, verse 1, Hosea chapter 1, and uh, verse 1. <clears throat> Hosea 1 and 1, the Bible says here, The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Uri, in the days, now he prophesied during these particular kings of uh, Judah and uh, then the king of Israel, as the kingdom was divided during this time, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of jo Joash, the king of Israel. So the Lord, you'll find, if you will, those kings mentioned in, in uh, First uh, Kings and Second Kings, as well as First and Second Chronicles. But Hosea was a man called of God, speaking the word of God. If you look with me to Second Peter chapter one, Second Peter chapter one this morning. Look with me there. 2 Peter chapter 1, and we'll begin at verse 19. 2 Peter 1, and looking at verse 19 here, uh, the Apostle Peter, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says something important. He says here, We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn, 
and the day star arise in their hearts. He's speaking of the written word of God. They had seen the Lord and spoke of him uh, with, their, with their mouths, and yet he is elevating the word of God here. It says, knowing, in verse 20, this, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came out in old time by the will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. God inspired, Bible says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for many things, but it's given by inspiration in that God breathed through the men uh, that wrote these words down. God spoke to us through man, even fallible man, he gave us the perfect, preserved word of God, even on the subject we're speaking about this morning, looking back again to Hosea 14, Hosea chapter 14. <clears throat> If you will, verse 4. I will heal their backs and I will love them freely, for my anger is turned away from them. So, as we're talking about this particular subject of the Lord's exhortation of love, he's writing to a people that are having definite problems. We see that in verses 1 through 3. They're having problems with sin, with idolatry. And the Lord is sending them a message, not of just harsh, mean, nasty judgment, although they probably were worthy of it as all sinners are, and yet the Lord is speaking to them in terms of love, trying to draw them back to himself. And he says in the verse 4, I will heal their backsliding, I will love them freely. So as we talk about God's free love, I want us to talk, first of all, the Lord will freely love the sinner in salvation. The Lord will freely love the sinner in salvation. Verses 1 through 3 speak of, if you will, the idolatry. They're talking that Israel was often prone to. Verse 1, O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God, for thou, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. Take with you words and turn unto, uh, to the Lord, and say unto him, Take away all iniquity, and receive us graciously, so will we render the calves of our lips. Asher shall not save us, we will not ride upon horses, uh, neither will we say any more to the work of our hands. Ye are our gods, for in thee, the Father was finding mercy. One of the greatest problems that Israel ever had was that of idolatry. It's an amazing thing because God had manifested himself in many great ways before the very eyes of Israel time and time again, and yet time and time again, they found themselves getting caught up in idolatry. And folks, you know what, folks? If you're not going to worship God, you're probably going to worship something else or someone else. As a matter of fact, idolatry is spoken of in this terms and defined as the worship of idols, images, or anything that is made by hands, which is not God. And folks, you know, if you can make a God with your hands, then you're God. Amen. <coughs> but folks, we are not God. And when we make a statue, an idol, or image, or something, and begin to worship it as God, we are guilty of idolatry. And I don't care what the what kind of special face we want to put on it. I mean, there are some churches you go to that you'll find statues at every window uh, commemorating the saints, or you'll find a statue of Mary, you'll find candles, you'll find all kinds of, if you will, forms of idolatry. People are encouraged to pray to saints, to Mary, and to other people. And folks, you know what those people were? Sinners. 
What good would it do us as sinners to pray and worship another sinner? There are those who are involved in religions where that, particularly Hinduism, where they worship, I mean, everything is about to a Hindu. As a matter of fact, you've got to be careful that you don't squash them up because you might kill a God. He said, oh, not really, yeah. People are often involved with idolatry and uh, sometimes they're not aware of it. You know, there is also the de definition of the excessive attachment or veneration for anything or that which borders on adoration. You know, sometimes uh, people, if we're not careful, we'll make idols of people. You know, what bothers me about Hollywood and sports and everything, not that sports are wrong necessarily. Or, now, I want to say that a lot of what goes on in Hollywood is wrong. But to hold a person up as if they're worthy of some kind of worship, either because of some acting ability or because of some sports ability. Now, you know what? It's not, sports are not wrong. But sometimes people border on the point of idolatry and worshiping men and women who can do what appears to be amazing things. But who is like unto our God? No one. And yet Israel was guilty of idolatry. Look at me to Genesis chapter 3. Look at me to Genesis chapter 3 and 1. You know, <clears throat> idolatry began early on in the life of man. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Here the Bible says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Remember, even the devil is created by God. He is not God, though he, he desires to be as God. <clears throat> and said of the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree in the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. Already he is undermining God and his word in the lives of men even as he did in heaven. For God doth know that a day that you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Folks, what was behind this? Well, it was a rebellion led by the devil, the serpent, he, he strove to become God. It was his goal. Isaiah 14 says that. And he wanted not only the mankind to worship him, but in one sense he was also teaching them self-worship. The worshiping of self. You know, sometimes, folks, if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we get a little too wrapped up in ourselves. You know, I appreciate the, the fact that some of us have to lose weight. Amen. I appreciate that. For health's sake and and but but you know our world is driven oftentimes by the way people look. And women don't feel appreciated because they think, well, their husband's like, do I look fat? Ever had your wife say that? Do I look fat? Now I don't say that to my wife because she said, No, you look fat. <laughs> I don't want to know that. Listen, there's some things I want to stay away from me. Yeah. <laughs> but um, you know, sometimes we're so worried about what we look like. And let me say this. I'm thankful if you've combed your hair, brushed your teeth, took a bath, and you came to church. Hallelujah. I'm glad for that. But don't worry if you're not one of the beautiful people. Because I'm looking around thinking, I don't know if I see any of the beautiful people. But what I do see is people who've maybe come to 
to worship the Lord according to God's word. But oftentimes, if we're not careful, even men can begin to worship men. Look at me in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And please, if you're here as a visitor, don't come up to me and say, you don't appreciate you to look bad. I don't appreciate you to go Even though it may be true. Now, Romans chapter 1. And let's begin at verse 16. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. Bible says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shuddered into them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that, with, that are made, even with eternal power and Godhead. So there, without excuse, you know, folks, this world didn't happen by accident. And we don't need to buy into the philosophy of evolution because evolution is turning men away from God and they're looking for God and searching God and worshiping God. You know, if we buy into those kinds of philosophy, we then make, the, if you will, scientists and science a form of worship. You know, how many times have we heard during the, 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 the COVID issue how they kept mentioning, oh, the science behind COVID. What science? There's no more science for COVID than there is for evolution. Amen? And yet we're told that, look, we've got to blindly follow that. Really? Well, the Lord has shown us the world, uh, you know, the, the very creation itself, this world in which we live, points to the fact that there is a God, not just a, an intelligent designer, but a God. And God created all that we see and all that we know. Verse 21, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like a corruptible man, and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their own hearts, the desire of their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Folks, you know, God would have us to worship him because he alone is God. He has created all the folks who will be answerable to this God. And yet people still, often not even maybe realizing it, have rejected God and they're worshiping either something that man has made or sometimes even men like themselves. And folks, you know what we are? You and I are sinners, fallible sinners. None of us are perfect. And I thank God that God is not like you and I. He is perfect in all things. He has, if you will, freely loved us in the salvation. Look at me to Exodus 20. Exodus 20, I, I believe with all my heart that part of the reason God gave the law, this law to Israel, the Ten Commandments, was so that all of us would know what God expects from man. But sometimes we say, oh, this is the Old Testament is for Israel. The word of God is for all men. And we will be responsible to God for all of his words. In Exodus 20, Exodus 21, 
And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, and out of the house of bondage. And thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. And thou shalt not bow down thyself, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy to thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. God established early on the law against idolatry. He did it through Israel. God had established Israel for one great purpose, to show the world that there is a God. You know, people say, well, I don't believe there is a God. You know what, folks? Look at Israel. And you know what? I'm not saying that Israel should be uh, treated in some senses better than any other nation. And yet, through the nation of Israel, the history of Israel, through the Word of God, the history of Israel given to us by the Word of God, we see and know that there is a God, and that He is a jealous God, and that He wants all of us to worship Him. He established it early on. His commandment against idolatry. God would be our God, Matthew 15. Matthew 15. <clears throat> You can choose, and God has given you a choice to, to worship whom you will worship. As a matter of fact, Joshua said to Israel at one point in Joshua 24, Choose you this day whom you will serve, whether it be the Lord God or, if you will, some other God. In Matthew 15 and verse 1, Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. But he answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and thy mother, and he that curseth father and mother, let him die the death. But she say, Whosoever shall say to his father his mother is a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, and honor not his father his mother, he shall be free. Thus have you made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. I'm going to stop there. You know what? In our world today and in America, America has been called a Christian nation. In America today, they are violating the commandment of God in our public school system when they're saying that a parent has no right to interfere with whether his child is taught that he could be a boy or a girl or something else. Folks, you know what? God has made in the, in the beginning, made the male and female. He's given the authority to raise our children to the parents. And you know what? You have a right as a parent to stand up and say, you know what? I'm not going to have my children taught that kind of foolish nonsense and a violation of God's law. You know, folks, we're not going to make a, a God out of the government. Any form of the government. The Lord is God. And those other things are lies or a violation of the commandments of God. In part, that was part of why we homeschooled our children, because of not the, the instruction that the public school is giving people today, but rather the indoctrination of philosophies that are often anti-God. Do you say that all the public school teachers are bad and they mean to do wrong? No. But often, as time goes on, they're being pressured by the, the, the teachers' association to push doctrines and ideas and philosophies on young people, and it's not their place. 
Amen? You have the right as a parent to say no to that kind of nonsense. I wouldn't want my children. Now, they're not little anymore. Matter of fact, my oldest is sitting up here. He said, Dad, don't bring my name up. Please, <laughs> don't let them know that you're mine. Okay, sorry. <laughs> He's not a kid anymore. But you know what? He's grown up. And he wasn't taught those things. Now, he went to a public college and he heard about those things. Only it's worse now than it was when even he went to the public college. But let's be on in verse 7. Ye hypocrites, well, Isaiah prophesied the saying, This people draw nigh unto me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship and teaching for doctrine of the commandments of men. How many people go to a church where they're not taught the word of God? They're not sure what to do in reference to worship, who they're to really worship. And you know, it's amazing sometimes how much hypocrisy goes on in the realm of religion. People will stand in pulpits, they'll talk about God, they'll talk about right from wrong, and then they'll go out and do the wrong thing anyway. You know, the religious Jews were very religious, even very conservative in their religion, many of them, and yet when Christ came <coughs> on the scene, they rejected Christ. Refused to worship him. As a matter of fact, criticized the multitude that, that uh, brought him in and honored him as the king of Israel during his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. They weren't worshiping the Lord. And yet, God loved them and came to save them. You know, he came, he corrected these, these religious leaders, but you know, the, the whole point behind it was that he loved them and wanted to help them to see that they're in error. You know, many, many millions of people in this world are honestly and sincerely trying to worship a God. And yet they don't know the one true and living God. And yet God loves them and wants them to know. He wants them to know, I, I love you uh, freely. John 4. John 4. And verse 19. John 4. In verse 19, <clears throat> here the Bible says, And the woman said unto him, Now we know the Lord Jesus Christ on purpose went out of his way to this city called Sychar to preach, if you will, to the gospel to a, a very wicked, ungodly woman. And yet he went there in love. He talked to her about sin. He talked to her about the sin. As a matter of fact, he says in verse 19, the woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that our prophet, our fathers worship in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. She's quibbling about where we worship. She was missing whom we're supposed to worship. And Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship, you know not what. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. Not that you have to be a Jew to be saved, but the Savior came through the nation of Israel. Amen? He didn't come by accident through Israel. He came on purpose through Israel, the nation that God had called into existence to show the world that there is a God. Amen? He says, but the hour cometh and now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. You know, God wants honest, heartfelt, true worship according to the word of God. 
and you know I'm a Baptist of top, from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet, inside and out. But I'm going to tell you something. Being a Baptist won't get you to heaven. Amen. You've got to be saved by the grace of God. Saved by putting your faith and trust in a God who will love you freely. Amen. Amen. And you know, sometimes when people get worked up and worried about, oh, you know, aren't we supposed to worship here? Aren't we supposed to follow these people? And, 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 and aren't we supposed to believe it? You know, folks, God has told us what to believe and in whom we should believe, who we should trust. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, the woman saith in verse 25, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus said unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. He said, I'm the Christ. I'm the Savior. And she got it. She got it. She, but she went home and said, Come see a man who told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? She got the message. She received Christ. John 14, excuse me, Hosea 14 again. <clears throat> <clears throat> And if you will, verse 4, Hosea 14 and 4. <clears throat> Hosea 14 and 4. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. You know the word freely means without restraint or constraint or compulsion. It speaks of loving freely and voluntarily. Simply because the Lord chooses to love. Not because we deserve to be loved or that we could possibly do anything to make us lovable. Now, <clears throat> I don't want to I don't want to put a damper on you. You may say, well, people tell me I'm lovable. Okay. <laughs> okay. But that won't get you to heaven. Amen. That won't get you to heaven. As a matter of fact, God won't love you more than anyone else because somebody special to you says you're lovable. Amen. We're not going to heaven, we're not saved from sin because you think you're lovable. Or maybe somebody told you. But understand this, God says, I will love them freely. God voluntarily chooses to love us who are not worthy to love. You know what we are? We are sinners, we are violators of the law of God. We are called unjust, unclean, unholy. And yet God looked down from heaven and said, listen, I, I choose to love you. I want you to be saved. I love you and want you to be saved. First John chapter 4. First John chapter 4. <clears throat> you go to the church today and say, oh, that preacher just told me I was nasty and, and unlovable. And, <laughs> okay. Now, your husband, if you maybe hear the wife, and your husband says, I love you, you're lovable. Cute. You know what my wife says to me? She says, you're cute. Now, you don't have to believe that. <laughs> and I don't look in the mirror and say, yeah, you're cute. No. no. But my wife thinks I'm cute. Amen. If you ask her, trip, I'm going to tell you. So what? What does that got to do with anything? Why are you saying that? I don't know. First John 4. Fill up time, man. First John 4. <clears throat> and if you will, look at verse 7. First John 4 and 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that is born of God knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love, it's God's nature to love. 
It's a part of who he is. And this was manifest the love of God toward us because that God sent his only son, only begotten son of the world, that we might live through him. Here is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He sent Christ to the cross of Calvary because sin was such a serious issue, it would keep us from God and heaven forever. And God said, I love them, I want them, I want to save them. He sent his only begotten son in the verse 14 of the same chapter, 1 John 4 and 14. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in, he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath uh, to us, God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. God, again, as Michael says, God is love. And he manifests his love toward us in that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Look at Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. <clears throat> I think sometimes in family relationships we can manifest love, even the love of God, when sometimes we are in obedience to God, loving someone who is not loved. It's sad when a wife lives with a man who is a bear cat and hard to live with and nasty and mean, and yet, as a Christian woman, she strives to love him anyway. Folks, you know, I think sometimes about love, and one of the, the people that I know loves me as much as anybody, including God, is my wife. You say, well, what's that got to do with anything? She loves me in spite of the fact that she lives with me. She knows me like only God knows. And yet she chooses to love me. And I thank God that love can be manifested and should be manifested in our homes. Amen? It's not always, and yet it should be. Bible says to husbands, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Romans 5 and verse 6, the Bible says, And when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Meaning we can't save ourselves. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, that peradventure for good men some would even dare to die. But God commended his love toward us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath of him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. You know, folks, God loved us <clears throat> not, when we were, not when we were his friends, but rather when we were his enemies. <coughs> this is another place of my wicked works. God said, I love them and I'm going to die for them. And I'm dying for them so that hopefully in time to come they will choose me as their friend. Choose to receive my love and the sacrifice on Calvary. If you will, Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 will begin in verse 23. Romans 3 and 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You know, grace is free. We don't merit it. The Bible says, For by grace you are saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. I thank God that grace is free. 
Because we couldn't merit that any more than we can merit love. <clears> Through <throat> the redemption of in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be the propitiation through faith and his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Folks, God sent his son to die for us, to manifest his love for us. And you know what he says to every sinner in need of a savior, I will love you freely. Jesus said, come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Folks, the gift of God's love toward us in, in our need of salvation. Secondly, Hosea 14 again. <clears throat> Hosea 14. See the second and last one this morning. <clears throat> Two points, but no poem. Hosea 14 and verse 4. <clears throat> I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. For my anger is turned away from them. The second thing is the Lord will freely love the backslider in restoration. You know, the, the Lord says, I will freely love the sinner in salvation. God will freely love the backslider in restoration. You know, the backslider is someone who knows the Lord. Who knows the Lord and yet has backslid. The word backslide means that they have fallen away from their faithfulness to the Lord. Now, let me help you understand something. You can never lose your salvation. You know why that's true? Jesus said, I sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and I give unto them eternal life. What does eternal mean? It means forever. The life God gives to you and I is a life, is eternal life, life forever with God in heaven. And it doesn't depend upon what we do, but rather what he's done for us. And after we're saved by the grace of God, we talked about it this morning in the, in, the, in the Sunday school hour, folks, God saves us and he wants us to be like him. And that means be obedient to the Lord, follow the Lord, what have you. As Christian people, what does it mean to be a Christian? Like Christ. To behave like Christ. A Christian doesn't mean that you're a Christian because you go to a particular church. Being a Baptist doesn't necessarily make you a Christian. Salvation by grace through faith in Christ makes you a Christian. Amen. Amen. That makes you a Christian. But I'm gonna, let me tell you this. It also makes you a Christian when you behave like the Christ who loved you and gave himself for you. Amen. Loved you and gave himself for you. Hosea 11, verse 7. Hosea 11, <clears throat> and verse 7. Sermon getting rise after a lot of water. <clears throat> Hosea 11, verse 7. The Lord says of Israel <clears throat> and his people, and my people are bent to backsliding from me. Though they called, uh, though they called them to the most high, none at all would exalt him. You know, they were struggling with back, backsliding. You know, sometimes in the in a sin-cursed world in which we live. Christian people at a time that are struggling with backsliding. The Bible says in Matthew 24 and 12, we won't take the time to look at it. The Bible says, Because iniquity abounds, the love of many shall wax cold in the last days. And folks, we're living in those days. We're living in a world that's becoming more perverse and more nasty as time goes on. And be sure of this. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15 and 33, Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. 
It's important what we listen to, what we watch, what we read, where we go as Christian people. Because it's going to have an effect upon our life and our life for God. Amen. <clears throat> and here are people who knew better. And you know, folks, we as Christian people know better, don't we? Well, some people say, well, you know, I, I made a mistake. Sometimes we use that as an excuse for backsliding, for doing the wrong thing. I made a mistake. Listen, if you chose, if you chose to do something and you knew what you were doing, you didn't make a mistake, you did the wrong thing. When I choose that, I do the wrong thing. I can say, well, I made a mistake. You chose to do the wrong thing, you backslid. Amen? Let's be honest with ourselves. God, yeah, folks, God is honest. He said, I will heal their backs because I will love them freely. Even as backsliders. And aren't you glad? Because who in this room who is a Christian hasn't ever done the wrong thing? Well, preacher, you, you probably have done the wrong thing. Wrong? Wrong? I do a lot of dumb things. Wrong things sometimes. Are you a hypocrite because you do the wrong thing sometimes? No. You're human. Even as a Christian, sometimes you're human. You make bad choices. Amen. A hypocrite is someone pretending to be something that they're not. Amen. There's a difference. Isaiah 57. Isaiah 57 and verse 17. Here the Lord says to the prophet Isaiah, For the iniquity of his covetousness was I wroth, and smote him, I hid me, and was wroth, and he went on forward in the way of his, his heart. I have seen his ways, and will heal him. I will lead him also, and restore comforts unto him, and to his mourners. You know, God is saying to, to his own people, who sometimes flatly disobey him, find themselves backslidden, God says, listen, I, I love you freely, I want to heal your backslidings. You know, sometimes we get crossways with God. We're out in Timbuktu somewhere wondering, you know, does God still love me? Amen and amen and amen. No matter what we do, eternal life is eternal love forever. Jeremiah 3 and 21. <clears throat> That's not an excuse to sin. <laughs> Uh, Jeremiah 3 and 21. Jeremiah 3 and 21. The Bible says, A voice was heard upon the high places, weeping and supplications of the children of Israel, for they have perverted their way, and they have forgotten the, the Lord their God. I mean, they're already realizing, hey, we're in a mess here. And they're crying out to God, and they think, well, you know, what, what would you do? And God says, return, verse 22, Jeremiah 3 and 22, return, ye backsliding children, and I will heal your backsliding. Behold, we come unto thee, for thou art the Lord our God. You know, be sure of this. You know, you may find yourself someday down the road in a mess as a Christian and wonder, man, what am I going to do? Look at the mess I've and wonder, you know, 
Does God care about where I'm at? You know what he'd like to tell you? I will love thee freely. Come back to me, backslider. Come back to me, backslider. Repent, come back to me. Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, 1. At the same time, saith the Lord, will I be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. And God said that to New Testament Christians in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18. Thus saith the Lord, of the people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness, even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest, the Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love, therefore with loving kindness have I drawn thee. And I was talking to backslidden Israel. I was reminding them of where they're at and his call to them to come back. And he's saying to them, listen, I don't care what you've done. I will love you forever. I will love you forever. Now he's not pleased with every dumb thing you do. Be sure of that. God isn't pleased when we sin, but understand this, he loves us anyway and wants us to come out of sin, to come home and be with him. And again, Luke 17, Luke 17, in verse 1, Luke 17, verse 1. <clears throat> Then said he unto his disciples, it is impossible, it is impossible, but that offenses will come. He's talking about sin and sin against each other. But woe unto him through whom they come. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he cast into the sea than he should offend one of these little ones. What little ones? Is he talking about children? I think in one, in one sense sometimes he is. And it's important that we're careful about what we do with children. So important. But I think he's really speaking about the children of God and offending them, sinning against them. But he goes on to give instruction. Take heed to yourselves. This gives us the context of what he's speaking in verses 1 and 2. Take heed to yourselves if thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day and seven times in a day, turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. Now, you know, <clears throat> We're taught in our world today that you just have to forgive everybody about everything all the time. Well, God doesn't forgive a sinner except they repent and turn from sin to Christ and believe on Christ. You understand that? God doesn't forgive you just because, well, you know, I got caught and I'm just not too sure about this. And, and God, you know what God forgives you when you're sorry for sin? You know when your kids are little, they grow up, you know you teach them to do the right thing. But you teach them when you're honest about doing wrong, you can forgive them. Now they may have to have some punishment, but their punishment is less when they're honest and if they're lying. Isn't it so? Now God in salvation says, if you, except you repent, Luke 13, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Repentance is a part of salvation. It's the other side of the coin of faith. 
except you repent. Repent means to turn from sin, not reformation. Turn in repentance from sin to Christ, and you know, you know what you're saying? I want to change. After you're saved, you know what repentance is? Acknowledging that I was wrong. And saying, you know something? I'm sorry that I, I was wrong. It's not making excuses for wrongdoing. It's admitting wrongdoing. And when that happens, God forgives. When that happens, we forgive. Well, what if they don't repent? Let me ask you this question. Can you forgive someone who doesn't think they've done the wrong thing? We can love them anyway. But if they don't repent, and we brought the matter to them, there's no forgiveness. Amen. There's no forgiveness, whether it be in salvation or after salvation as a Christian. We have to be willing to forgive. But I want to tell you something, folks. If people don't acknowledge wrongdoing and say, I'm sorry, how can you forgive them? You know, a murderer that stands in the courtroom and yells and screams at the victim's families about how wrong they are for convicting him, shouldn't we forgive him? No. He doesn't think it's wrong. He thinks it was justified in killing someone. You know, let's think scripturally about forgiveness. You know, when Christians backslide, they don't lose their salvation, but you know what? They feel like there's something between them and God. And it's, their sin. it's like we've thrown up a wall. Look at me at Isaiah 59 and 1. <clears throat> Isaiah 59 and verse 1. The Bible says, The Lord's hand. The Lord's hand is not short that it cannot that it cannot save. Neither is your heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between your you and your God, and your sins have hid his from you that he will not hear. You know, there's something that separates us from God before we're saved, it's called sin. And afterward, when we when we sin against God, you know what? There's no fellowship there. There's no fellowship there. Because we're not with him but two. And yet God's in us, he's loving us, he's going after us, he's saying, come home, and I, I will love thee freely, I will heal your backsliding. In order to find healing for backsliding as a Christian, what do you have to admit? I've been wrong with God. I'm not right with God. But God loves us anyway. Look at John 13. John 13. Look at verse 34, John 13 and 34. <clears throat> a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Verse 35, by this shall all men know that you are disciples, if you have loved one to another. Now you know what? We need to love as God loved. He said, I will love you freely. You know what God wants us to do? The kind of love he wants us to give other people? Unconditional love. That's why he commands us either to love your enemies. I don't have to forgive them, but I have to love them. And want them to come to know the loving Savior that saved me by his grace. Amen? 
Love as he loved. Love one another as he loved. You know, <clears throat> sometimes when a husband and wife have a, 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 a fight, has, ever, has any one of you ever said to yourself, or maybe to your spouse, do you love me still? Ever thought that? Are you going to quit loving me? You know, people think these things. And the fact is that sometimes they think these things even with God. When we come to God and we're honest with God and say, Lord, I sin. God said, I love you. I forgive you. Amen? I love you. I forgive you. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. <clears throat> Say, preacher, you're preaching heresy. Now I'm trying to preach the scripture to you. You know, because, you know, you know what's amazing to me? Have you ever had someone who's doing wrong to you? And they, they almost like, like they come and they get in your face. And abusers do this. They come and get in your face and they have this attitude. You have to forgive me. You ever seen that? Ever seen that kind of an attitude? I have. And people say, wow, but I'm having trouble forgiving them. And they've never said I'm sorry. They've never acknowledged wrongdoing. How do we, how do we forgive them? We don't. And you know, the reason people struggle so hard with it is because they believe they've been taught the wrong thing about forgiveness. We have to love them. We, we have to love them and want them to be right with God or to get saved by the grace of God. But we can't, we don't have to forgive them until they repent. God doesn't forgive us except we repent. Amen. And you know, the love that God offers to us is a free love. A love that says, I'll forgive you. I'll forgive you. Second Corinthians 2 and 1. Paul writes here, but I, but I determined that this with myself, that I will not come again to you in heaviness, for I made you sorry. Who is, the, who is he then that maketh me glad, but the same which is made sorry by me? Now Paul has written, you know, First and Second Corinthians, those books were written not to commend these, these Corinthian believers for doing right, but rather for, to correct them for doing the wrong thing. <laughs> And folks, all of us at times need to be corrected for doing the wrong thing. All of us. That's why we have the Word of God. The Bible says that, that the, the rod and reproof give wisdom. He goes on to say in verse 3, I wrote the same epistle, uh, I wrote the same unto you, lest when I come I should have sorrow of them whom I ought to rejoice, having confidence in you all, that my joy is a joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote of you with many tears, not that you should be free, but that you, that you might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. But if any have caused grief, he had not grieved me, but in part that I may not, be, uh, uh, may not overcharge you all. Sufficient, sufficient to a man is this punishment which was inflicted of many. He's talking about church discipline. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we won't take the time to look at it, but Paul instructed the church at Corinth in, in church discipline. A man stood, this particular man stood in rebellion against God and fornication, sin against God, and the church was dragging their feet about doing anything about it. 
When the man refused to get right, they were, they were commanded of God, and Paul to put him out. Not to be mean, but to, listen, to show their love for God and for that individual. Paul is writing here about his love for them. <clears throat> but if any have caused grief, he have not grieved me, but a pardon might not overchargeable. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment, which was inflicted of many. So that contrary wise, you write, might you ought rather to forgive him and to comfort him, lest perhaps such an one should be over, should be swallowed up of overmuch sorrow. Wherefore I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him. You know what Paul is saying? Now that he's gotten right, receive him. Confirm your love to him that you know him. You've loved him. You know, folks, sometimes to punish a Erring church member, a backslider, is important to restoring them to a right relationship with God and the people of God. In a relationship for reconciliation to take place between a husband and wife, we need, we need both parties need to face the fact that maybe I've done some things wrong and be willing to fess up to one another and forgive one another. Here a man was guilty of, of fornication incest. He'd gotten right with God, and Paul said, listen, let's confirm our love by forgiving him and receiving him after he repented and got right with God. See, the Lord says, <clears throat> he says, I will love them freely, even the backslider. I will love them freely. Love them eternally. And his desire is that they be restored to a right relationship. Hebrews chapter 12 Hebrews chapter 12. Let's look at verse 5. Hebrews 12 and 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh of you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chaste of the Lord, nor faint when thou rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth. He chasteth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection of the Father, spirits, and live? For they verily. For a few days, chase us after their own pleasure. And I stopped there for a moment. You ever got <clears throat> mad at your, your kids at home? And in correction, you say, shut up! Be quiet! Well, let me tell you something. Usually yelling at a kid doesn't do anything. You don't yell at them. Take them aside and correct them and teach them and instruct them in the right way. But we often, including myself, have at times yelled at our kids, not because we were concerned about what they were doing and whether they were doing the right thing, but be simply because we were comfortable with what they were doing. They were making us mad because we're making too much noise, interrupting television, and who knows what. Folks, that's not discipline. That's not correction. That's not training. God, listen, God chases us, corrects us, trains us. He says here, <clears throat> Verse 10, for they barely for a few days chasing us after their own pleasure. But he for our profit, he's a faithful heavenly father, 
that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yielded the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Again, we're talking about healing the backslidden, healing those that are out of the way, healing those that are not right with God as Christian people. Helping them to realize, you know what? What I'm doing is wrong. You know, a parent that loves their children will take the time not to yell at them, but to sit them down and say, now look, you know what you're doing is wrong. And if we've been talking to them, we've been teaching them, you know what they'll have to say, you know you're right. And what we're looking for is not them complying with their mouth, but complying with their heart. And saying, Mom, Dad, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was wrong. And you know what? We're, we're more often than not willing to show some greater mercy to a child who's honestly saying, I was wrong. I admit it. We may have to punish them. We may have to correct them with an actual physical punishment. But we correct them because we love them. Amen? God corrects us because he loves us and wants us to be and do that which is right for our good and his glory. Proverbs 13. And God as a perfect heavenly father gives instruction to us imperfect parents. Proverbs 13 and 24. Proverbs 13 and 24. He that spareth his rod. Now he's talking about the rod of correction. He's talking about giving the kid their old-fashioned spanking. It is not talking about child abuse or beating your child until you know, they're nearly dead. That's child abuse. He's talking about giving them a good old-fashioned spanking when they need it. And a spanking is not the, the course of, of correction in every situation. You, you spank a child for direct disobedience to you and your authority. God, you know what? God spanks us with, chases us when we've been in direct disobedience to his authority in our lives. Because he knows what's best for us. Let's read the verse. He that spareth his rod hated his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes. You know the word betimes means early. Early. The sooner, the better. You know what? <clears throat> you know what all, all parents have when they have children? They bring into this world sinners. Now we hold them in our arms, we cuddle them and say, oh, what a little angel. <clears throat> Give him a few years. <laughs> And you won't be called a little angel. You'll be saying, look at this devil. You might want to throw him in a snowbank. There were times when I felt like doing that. When they're holding a kid as stiff as a board, screaming bloody murder, I'm thinking, what do I do with him? What do I do with him? And I thought, well, there's the door. <laughs> and no one, if they're paying attention, will open the door, throw him out there, let him cool off. <laughs> Say, preach you didn't do that. No, but there were times when I was tempted. Morally tempted. You feel like that. You know, sometimes mothers, they, they put up with kids 
and they, they get to a point like they're about to pull their hair out and they want to, they talk, oh! Now, do they not love them? No. They love them. Sometimes they get tired of them. But that's what we need to correct them, teach them, help them to know what's, how to do right. Kids, you know what? We never have to teach a child to do wrong. We spend our lives trying to teach them to do right. You know, Mark 1, uh, verse 15. Repent you and believe the gospel so you can be, be forgiven. Receive the love of God. You know, the gospel is how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. Died for our sins. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. When did you receive the, the free love of God and salvation? And let me ask you this. If you're a Christian, are you backslidden? Are you walking with God? Are you, are you obedient? I'm not saying perfect. Because none of us are, including me. But you and the Lord know whether you're backslidden or not. You and the Lord know. Are you backslidden? God says to you, if you are, I will love you freely. I will heal your backsliding. What do you want from God? He said, I love you. Will you come back to him if you're saved? <clears throat> will you come to him if you're not? Let's pray. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about this message, or if you would like information about our church, please visit us online at bbcdickinson.com. I'm glad to have you with us. Hope to be helped to you. Amen. John 15, we'll begin in verse 1. Here our Lord Jesus Christ says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him. The same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me he can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit, and so shall ye be my disciples. Again, we're still talking about the subject of bearing fruit as Christ's disciples. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I pray as we open to thy word this morning, God, that you'd help me to preach and teach thy word. And Father, Lord, we desire to be a help and blessing to all who have come in this hour and in the hour to follow. And I pray that uh, your will would be done in every heart. God, help us not only to hear, but understand and apply. God bless us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, bearing fruit as Christ's disciples, we have already considered in, in this subject in verse 1. I am Jesus, and I am the true vine, and my Father is the husband. We've talked about the source of our fruitfulness is Christ. Christ says, I am the true vine. All of the, the source for nutrition and growth comes through him. Uh, that is our Lord Jesus Christ. We found uh, 
if you will, we talked about the cultivator of our fruitfulness is God the Father. Again, Jesus and I, in verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the husband. And know this, that <clears throat> as Christian people, when you get saved by the grace of God and, and, uh, and uh, trust Him as your Lord and Savior, uh, you, you, uh, Christ takes up residence in your hearts by faith. And you know, if you get a heavenly Father uh, like no earthly Father, you know, sometimes heaven, uh, earthly fathers abandon their, their, their families or what have you, leave them without care, leave them without nurturing, leave them without love and what have you. God the Father, when you get saved by the grace of God, God is your heavenly Father. He will love you. He will care for you. He will nurture you. He will help cultivate fruitfulness as a Christian in your life. And so we talked about that as well as the work of cultivation by the Father in verses 2 and 3. He says, <clears throat> Jesus says, Every branch in me uh, that beareth not fruit, he taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now you're clean through the word which I've spoken to you. God purges out, if you will, and cleanses things out of our lives through trials, through difficulties, and through his word. You know, God would have us to be clean and usable and fruitful. And folks, that is a work of God in our lives. You know, we don't, uh, we don't make ourselves grow without God working in us. God desires that we, be, that we grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord, that we become fruitful for Him, and that's not a work left up to us. That's a work that God does in us as the source of our fruitfulness and the cultivator of that fruitfulness. He sees to it, folks, that in time to come, we will be what He has predestined us to be. Look with me to Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> Look with me to Romans chapter 8, and verses 28 and 29. <clears throat> Romans 8, and again looking at verses 28 and 29. <clears throat> Here the Bible says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren, there are those that believe and teach that there are some who are predestined to go to hell and some who are predestined to go to heaven. The Bible doesn't teach that. But God has predetermined, when you trust Him as your Lord and Savior, that He will, by His work in our lives and helping us to be fruitful for Him, will, will uh, uh, make us into the image of Christ. Now, not that we'll be a bunch of little Christ walking around and we'll, we won't look exactly like Him, what have you. But what we will learn to do is behave like him, love like him, in one sense be like him as much as possible in this world. You know, and that's a blessed thing. To be like Christ is, a better, is better than being something, behaving like we often do. And all of us have problems, all of us have issues, even preachers. And uh, we're not perfect, though we get saved by the grace of God. God would have me and you, all of us as Christian people, to be like our Lord Jesus Christ. We benefit from that, and other people benefit from seeing the work that God does. And it's a work of conversion. In Acts 3 and 19, the Bible says, Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. God desired, des desires in salvation not just to, to uh, if you will, give us a home in heaven, but also to give us a life that we cannot have without him in this world. 
And as we're continuing talking about bearing fruit, looking back to John 15 this morning, John 15, the Gospel of John, John 15, we'll begin in verse 4. We we began to talk last week about abiding in Christ and bearing fruit as his disciples. This is important to fruit-bearing as Christian people, that is, abiding in him. We found that the word in verses 4 through 6, we'll read here again, it says, Jesus said, abide in me. And I and you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of, its, of itself, except that it abide in the vine. No more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. We find that in these verses there are seven times uh, the, the uh, scripture, well, I left off verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and shall be done. And in these verses, if you will, we find seven times the word abide is used. And the word seven is a number of divine fullness, perfection, completeness. It is one of the perfect numbers and comes from a Hebrew word meaning to be complete, to be full, to be satisfied, to have enough. God, let me say this, when he speaks of perfection, you and I will never experience sinless perfection in this life as a Christian. But what we will, when he speaks of perfection, he's talking about spiritual maturity, he's talking about growing up and being like the Lord. And in doing so, and as we become more like the Lord, we, are, we will bear fruit of the Lord in our lives. We found as well that the number seven outside of Scripture is used throughout the creation of God. We found that there are seven stages of life in fruit-bearing plants. The fruit, the stem, the leaves, the flower, the, uh, uh, the flower stalk, the flower, root, and seed. Among um, <clears throat> cereal foods beneficial to man found in all parts of the world, there are seven. Wheat, oats, barley, maize, or corn, rice, rye, and millet. We also found that the hum- human body is composed of seven parts. Four limbs, um, the head, neck, and the trunk. There are seven holes in the head. Now, there for, for some of you, there may be more, but there's at least seven. For most of us, amen. <laughs> uh, there are two eyes, two ears, two in the nose, and one uh, in the mouth. Again, if you have another one, please let me know later. Not now. Amen. <laughs> there, are seven, uh, there are seven bones in the wrist. Uh, there are seven muscles in each hand and each foot. There are seven rib bones on each side of the breastbone. And folks, those are not coincidences. God is a perfect God. The number seven speaks of perfection, completion, if you will, maturity. And we talked about the fact that throughout Scripture, the number seven appears as well. Look at Matthew chapter 5. We're not going to look at all of them that we looked at last time, but in Matthew chapter 5, look with me there. I found out that some of you are awake when I talked about the holes in the head. Amen. There are times when I feel like I have a lot of holes in my head and everything's sort of leaking out. (laughs) Matthew chapter 5, let's begin in verse 1. Matthew 5 and 1, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now in in this passage of Scripture, we're going to find... Seven times the Lord brings out uh, 
uh, seven blessings, if you will, or the blessed ours. He says in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely. For my sake rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. So in this, in this passage of Scripture, we find seven blessed are, seven important things that uh, God blesses his, his children with, even though that some of them don't appear to be uh, a blessing or might not appear to be a blessing. Look me to Romans 12. Romans 12 this morning. Romans 12. And uh, verses 6 through 8. Romans 12. Verses 6 through 8, again, we mention the number 7 in Scripture. Romans 12, verses 6 through 8. There are seven things here mentioned, seven gifts. Romans 12 and 6, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. He that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. There are seven, if you will, gifts given by God. Not all seven given to all of us, but seven represented in this passage as gifts given to his people. And then we talked, we didn't look at all of these, but in the book of the Revelation is full of seven things. Seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven vials. And so, you know, there is something to be said if you will as we find in our text back in John 15 look back there with me in John 15 <clears throat> and again we find that we found that the, the phrase abide in me means re, uh, remain united to me by a living faith live a life of dependence on me and obedience to my doctrines imitate my example and constantly exercise faith in me. To abide in the Lord is something practical uh, for us. He says, abide in me and I in you. Now, let me say this. This relationship, this communion, this fellowship, this walking together with the Lord, uh, he says, abide in me and I in you. The failure is never on God's part. When we have problem with our relationship with God, with our abiding with Him, with our maybe lack of being fruitful for the Lord, it is never a problem on God's part. God is perfect in everything that He does with us, through us, and in us. Amen? We are not so. We are not always so. We strive to do our best and often fail. God will never fail us, though. And he will never forsake us nor leave us and what have you. And so this morning as we're continuing to talk about abiding in Christ, again in verse 4, the Lord says, Jesus says, abide in me. It is first, if you will, a command to abide in Christ. Now, you know what? It's, you know, sometimes people say a command. 
It should be our desire. I think in the, in the life of a Christian, there is a desire to, to walk with God, to, to trust Him, to love Him, to live for Him, and what have you. But often uh, there are things that would distract us, turn us aside from what the Lord wants. And so God commands us. He says, abide in me. This is not a suggestion. You know, sometimes people treat the Bible and the things that God has to say, they treat them as if, well, this is, here's a good suggestion, okay? Let me tell you this, the creator, the God that made you and I, knows what's best for you and I. And he also knows what our tendency is sometimes to be lazy, to be slack, to, to maybe not take things seriously as we ought. And so God says plainly to his disciples, to us as Christian people, he commands us, he says, abide in me. Because folks, sometimes we need to be commanded. And, and it, you know what, we would view a command differently than we would a suggestion. If I said to my wife, honey, <clears throat> could you wash the dishes? I'm, I'm, I'm treading on thin ice here, so be with, bear with me. I said, could you, if I said, could you wash the dishes? And, and, and then she didn't wash the dishes for days after days after days. You know, I might get to the point where I would say to her, honey, wash the dishes. Now that would come across as a command. Why? Because I'm trying to stress her, please wash the dishes. And she might say to me, you wash them. And I would say to her, it's not my job. And then we're all in all kinds of trouble, amen, <laughs> in, in deep trouble. But, you know, there's a difference between a command and a suggestion. You know, a suggestion we can set aside. We can treat it as if it's not important. And I'm not saying that I can't do dishes at home, and, but, but I'll be honest with you, I don't do them a lot. You know, the only time I do things like that is when I'm taking care of my wife because she's not well and she can't do those important things. Amen. <clears throat> I work a full-time job and I, someone asked me one time, I was cleaning the windows of the college, because I'm a custodian. And they said, well, would you like to come to my house and do windows? I said, listen, they pay me to do windows here. I said, I don't do them at home. And I said, I'm not going to your house to do them either. <laughs> you know, so please, let's not go there. Amen. <clears throat> but there's a difference between a command and a suggestion. You know, the Lord knows where we've been. In John 8 and 44, if you look there with me, John 8 and 44. <clears throat> you know, I occasionally have to be honest when I'm preaching, amen. John 8 and 44. Here Jesus said, You're of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own for he is a liar and the father of it. Now this was our past. Before we're saved, before we become a Christian, uh, we have a different father. And it's the, our father is the devil. He is a liar, a murderer. And folks, we often behave in the same ways. We lie to ourselves. Sometimes we lie to other people. We behave like the devil sometimes. And God, even though we're saved by the grace of God, knows that we need to be commanded as, a, as our new heavenly Father. He would command us because he knows our tendency, if we're not careful, to behave in, as we did in times past. Looking back in John 8 and verse 31. John 8 and 31. John 8 and 31. 
Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Oh, the truth of God will set us free to do the right thing. God has commanded in his word concerning fruit-bearing that we are to abide, commanded to abide in Christ. And, you know, that takes, some, uh, that takes some work on our part to, if you will, strive to walk with him, to talk with him, to be in his word daily, to pray, seek the Lord. Folks, that takes some work, and it takes sometimes a command from God to stress the importance of the matter of abiding in the Lord daily. Amen. If you will, look with me to Acts 14. Acts 14 and 21. <clears throat> you know, sometimes you, you roll out of bed <clears throat> and you think, well, I don't want to go to work today. But if you don't go to work today, you're not going to get paid and you're not going to eat. You're not going to have a place to live and a lot, number of other, if it's a persistent kind of behavior. You know, in effect, you know, you're commanded by your, your, your employer to come to work. He doesn't say it's a suggestion. He says, no, you come to work or you won't get paid. Amen. And if, the Bible says if a man won't work, he ought not to eat. And so we understand some of these things, but sometimes we don't uh, apply it in the same way uh, spiritually. In, in Acts 14, Acts 14 and 21, here the Bible says, and <clears throat> this is when Paul and Barnabas were on their first missionary journey out of the church in Antioch. And it says here in verse 21, and they preached the gospel to that city and had taught many... <clears throat> And when they had uh, preached the gospel of that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. And when he had ordained elders and uh, ordained, and when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. Now, Paul and Barnabas were going out preaching the gospel, baptizing the converts, organizing them into local churches, and establishing pastors in those churches. But one of the things that they did was, if you will, exhorted or commanded them to continue in the faith, to, if you will, in effect, abide in Christ and his word, because they understood that that was important, as was taught by our Lord Jesus Christ, to their bearing fruit for the Lord in their Christian life. Colossians 2. Colossians chapter 2. And looking at verses 6 through 8. Colossians 2. Verses 6 through 8. <clears throat> Here the Apostle Paul. Um, <clears throat> writing to the church at Colossae said this. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk ye in him. He's speaking again about abiding in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. But he says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. But again, he is he exhorting them, he is commanding them. Listen, he says, uh, <clears throat> Uh, as you have received Christ Jesus, so walk ye in him, abide in him. Folks, it is so important. 
in the Christian life that we're daily uh, walking with God. We're, we're in His Word. We're in prayer to Him. And that, that doesn't mean we're always sitting down, folding our hands and, and lifting our eyes. I mean, you, know, you can pray and seek the Lord at, at, at any moment of any day. And abiding in Christ sometimes in prayer as, as you go throughout your day, praying and seeking the Lord for guidance and, and sometimes just asking God for the strength to do right. Amen. Abiding in Christ is walking with him. And you know what? Sometimes it also involves meditating and thinking about the things that God has taught you in his word. You know, the Holy Spirit of God that dwells in us by faith will remind us of the truth of God throughout our day, teaching us and and helping us. That's part of abiding in Christ. It doesn't mean, and I think we ought to have a special time. When we sit down quietly with the Lord, read our Bibles, pray maybe over a, your morning coffee, whenever, whatever, and whenever that you can find that time. I know with, with women who are mothers, and you have the little rugrats around you, amen, and trying to find time as a mom to have your personal time, your devotional time can be difficult. But it is still important, and I don't know my wife oftentimes would have her devotion and special time alone at night. Say what? And sometimes late at night. That's after she's put the rugrats in the cages. Amen. Put them down. Put them to sleep. Knocked them out. Whatever she had to do. <laughs> so the things, we get have peace and quiet. And uh, after she's done cleaning and arranged the house and what have you, she'd spend time with the Lord herself. And, you know, some would say, well, you should do it first thing in the morning. You know what, folks? Do it when you can. Do it when you can. And wives and, and mothers sometimes have such a different schedule. You know, sometimes people say, well, uh, you know, preacher, you work a full-time job and you're a pastor. And I said, but I'm not a full-time mother. You know, moms have a full-time job. You know, there's no end to being a mom. You know, dads, we go to bed and say, yeah, okay, honey. And the, or she'll roll over and say, uh, Dan, would you go do that? Yeah, okay. And I go back to sleep. You know, she gets up and does what I can't do because I'm doing so many other things. She's doing her part. But, you know... Uh, a moms are 24-hour day job. Moms never quit thinking about their kids, never quit caring about them, never quit wondering how they're doing. And if they hear them cry in the middle of the night, they're up and going into the room trying to find out what's going on. So it's difficult sometimes for them to find the time. Sometimes if you're busy as a man, and myself as a full-time pastor and as a full-time uh, um, a worker, what have you, I have to find the time. And you know what? Let me say this. The first thing I do in the morning is not get my Bible out and read it. Oh, that's terrible, preacher. You know when I do it? On my lunch break from work. I come over here to this office, I get my Bible out, and I start reading the Bible. Really? Yeah. Because for me, it is the time, the best time for me to do it. And I, if I were to tell that to some preachers, they'd say, Oh, brother, you're not right with God. Who cares? What do you think? Who cares what you think? Amen. I spend time with God. God knows it. I spend time with, you know, I listen to the Bible on tape. I carry a little, it's like, I don't want to call them a walk. I used to call them Walkmans. They used to have actual tapes I listen to. Now they have this little MP3 player. I like to listen to the Bible while I'm working because of the kind of work I do. You know, I can think about the Lord. Abide in the Lord whether I'm on my knees before God in prayer or in my office or wherever. But we need that time to be with the Lord. We're commanded to do so because, folks, sometimes, we <clears throat> sometimes we'll make excuses about it. 
And God doesn't want us to make excuses. He wants us to know how serious the matter is. Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10 and 35. Here Paul writing to the Hebrew believers that are struggling says, Cast not away, verse 35 of Hebrews 10. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For you have need of patience, that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back into perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Now he's writing this to people who are under great persecution and difficulty as Christian Hebrew believers. And he's encouraging them and reminding them, if you will, of the command to abide in Christ. You say, well, show me the word abide. He's speaking of abiding. He says, cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense or reward. And then, folks, let's, let's hang on to God. Let's, if you will, abide in him. 1 John 2, 1 John chapter 2 this morning. <clears throat> And if you will look with me to <clears throat> verse 24, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 24. <clears throat> you the Apostle John, and remember this, the Apostle John wrote this epistle, 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, as well as the Gospel of John under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Folks, God uh, uses human, human beings to, uh, to be the instrument. He is the author of the book. In 1 John 2 and 24, let, there, let that therefore abide in you, which you have heard from the beginning. If, if that you have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, ye also shall continue in the Son and, the Father, and in the Father. And this is the promise he hath promised us, even eternal life. These things I have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you, but that same anointing <coughs> teacheth you of all things, and is truth and is no lie, even as it hath taught you, and, and ye shall abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. Again, he is, in, he is commanding them to abide in Christ. And you know what, folks? Part of the, 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 the necessity, or if you will, the, the reason for the command is because there are those who are out there who would seduce us or turn us away from what's true if we're not careful. And it's important that we abide in Christ by command. Secondly, if you will, look back to John 15. And John 15 this morning, <clears throat> as we're talking about Abiding in Christ for fruitfulness, it is uh, the command of God. Secondly, looking at uh, verse 4, Jesus said, And abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches, he that abideth in me and I in him. The same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me ye can do nothing. We see, secondly, the necessity to abide in Christ. Now God's commanded us, in Christ, God's commanded us to show us the importance of it, 
The second thing is there's the necessity uh, to abide in Christ. Folks, when we're talking about fruitfulness in the Christian life, that fruitfulness cannot be done or accomplished without, now listen, without God in us and our looking and dependent, looking to and depending on the Lord. You know, God doesn't just command us to go out and do this and do that and do this and do that and say, okay, I'll see you in a few weeks and we'll see how you're doing. Oh, he is our constant companion. He is constantly at work in us and he's teaching us we need personally to be involved in, in abiding in Christ, abiding in his word, abiding in prayer, walking with God daily. But know this, without God working in us, there will be no fruit from us. Amen? So very important. Uh, the Bible says in Philippians 2 and verse 13, For it is God, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and uh, to do of his good pleasure. Look with me to Hosea. Hosea in the Old Testament. <clears throat> Hosea chapter 14. Hosea chapter 14. You know, <clears throat> we are absolutely dependent upon God for salvation. No one can save himself from sin. No one can save himself from hell. No one can save himself from the wrath of God. Christ did all of that for us. When he went to the cross of Calvary, he died on the cross, shed his precious blood. And folks, you know what? He is the only way of salvation. And when we in, in the faith, believing what God has said about us, our need, turn to Christ with all of our heart, trusting him and him alone, to be the one and only Savior. Folks, we are saved by His power, by His work, and folks, our life will bear fruit by that same power and work in us. Again, Hosea chapter 14. Look at verses 8 and 9. Hosea 14, verses 8 and 9. Ephraim shall say, What have I do? What have I to do any more with idols? Now the Lord had taken Israel into to uh, different countries. He corrected them, chastened them because of their idolatry. He said, I have heard him and observed him. I am like a green fir tree. From me is thy fruit found. God is telling Israel, that, you know, if you're going to bear fruit of righteousness, it will be because of me. Who is wise and shall understand these things, prudent and shall know them, for the ways of the Lord are right, and the just shall walk in them, but the transgressors shall fall therein. You know, folks, if we're going to do right, we're going to bear the fruit of righteousness. It'll be not without him, but because of him. Luke 8, Luke chapter 8 this morning. And you know, let me say this, as a Christian, we desire to do right, we struggle with doing right, we want our lives to be fruitful for the Lord. And we can, and can only, by the grace and work of God in our lives. In Luke chapter 8 and verse 9, Luke chapter 8, and we'll start in verse 9. <clears throat> and his disciples asked him, saying, what might this parable be? Now he's just given them the parable of the sower. And he said unto them, it is given unto you to know the mysteries 
of the kingdom of God, but to others in parables, seeing uh, that seeing they might not see and hearing they might not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are they that hear, then cometh the devil, and taketh away that, uh, the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. And they on the rock are they which, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no root, which for a while believe, and in time of temptation fall away. And that which fell among thorns are they which, when they have heard, go forth and are choked with cares and riches, and pleasures of this life and bring forth no fruit to perfection. I was talking about three different kinds of grounds or hearts that have heard the word and not brought forth any kind of fruit. Now he's speaking of those who are not genuinely saved, but then he speaks of these, the lastly of the fourth ground, that which is, if you will, uh, someone who's saved. He says, and that which fell among the, or excuse me, verse 15, but that on the good ground, are they which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit uh, with patience. You know, those who are genuine Christians, uh, saved by the grace of God, will bring forth fruit unto perfection by the grace of God, by the work of God. God plants the seed in their heart for salvation. He nurtures and works in their lives to produce fruit after salvation. Second Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. <clears throat> you and I are not alone in this life, in this Christian life, and in the necessity for bearing fruit. God has already planned that you and I will bring forth fruit. In 2 Corinthians 12 and 7, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, looking at verse 7. Now Paul is writing about a weakness that God recognized in his own life. You know, sometimes we think of the Apostle Paul as the great Christian who had no problems, no weaknesses. And he says in verse 7, And lest I should be exalted above measure, through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Now God recognized in Paul a possibility of having a problem with pride because of how God had used him and was using him, even to um, uh, inspiring his word through him. And so uh, God said to Paul, he said, I'm going to give you a thorn in the flesh. And Paul didn't realize it at first. He, the Bible says here in verse 8, And for this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. He's, you know, God had used Paul to heal people. Now, it was God that did the healing, but all of a sudden, uh, the Apostle Paul has a, a problem. And I believe, and I say it all the time, that he had a problem with his eyes, which would have been a, a, a very detrimental thing to a preacher, to struggle with reading, having a problem with his eyes. And he said unto me, my grace, God's answer to him when he asked three times for God to take it away. He said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in mine infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. You know, the Apostle Paul was very fruitful for God. But he had to, know, he had to acknowledge and be taught to remember where, who it was that was really bringing forth fruit in his life and with his ministry. 
It was the Lord and the grace of God. In Galatians chapter 2, <laughs> sounds like the herd is coming, amen? Galatians chapter 2. <laughs> well, we'll try. Turn to Galatians chapter 2. Yeah. <laughs> well, they're awake, amen? If you weren't, you probably are now. Galatians 2, and look at verse 20. Paul writes here, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You know what? Well, there's a point in our lives where we need to learn to die and say, Lord, you know, it's not me, it's not what I want, it's what you want and your, your ability to live through me. Philippians 1, Philippians chapter 1. And of verse 9, Philippians 1, and of verse 9. And this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve the things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere without offense until the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ under the glory and praise of God. Paul acknowledges that the fruits of righteousness are by the work of God and the help of God in his life. Philippians 4 and 10. Philippians chapter 4 and uh, verse 10. Here the Bible says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein you were all so careful, but that you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased, I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Now he's talking about contentment. And that's a fruit of the work of God in Paul's life. God teaching him through all kinds of difficulty that he can be content, no matter what the difficulty Paul writes in verse 13, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. You know, sometimes you, you look at another Christian, you'll think, well, you know, how is it that they can do what they do? They do what they do. They are what they are as Christian people, as all Christians should acknowledge. I am what I am by the grace of God. That's the divine help of God. Amen. Let's pray. And verse 1, John 15, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my father is the husband of every branch under me, that beareth not fruit, he taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now you are clean to the word which I have spoken unto you, abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. <clears throat> No more can ye, except you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If a man abide not in, my, in me, and he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered, and men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Here is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, so shall you be 
my disciples. Again, we're still considering the subject of bearing fruit as Christ's disciples. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we are thankful for those who are able to be with us here this morning in the Sunday school hour. We pray, God, for those who could not. And Father, Lord, we pray for, especially this time as we open thy word and look into it. Father, thank you that you have given us the words of life, the words of eternal life. Father, the words that we would that you would have us to live by, even as thy word says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of, of the Lord. And Father, God, help us to be as that, help us to be disciples of the Lord, help us to live according to thy word. And Father, as we're considering being disciples for the Lord, God, help us to be fruitful disciples. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, bearing fruit as Christ's disciples. We have talked much about the subject. We have talked about the source of our fruitfulness is in Christ. And uh, verse 1, Jesus said, I am the true vine. The vine is the source of all the nourishment that uh, bears, eventually bears fruit in the life of the vine. And then we talked about the cultivator of our fruitfulness is God the Father. I am the true vine, and my Father is the husband. And he is the caretaker, the one that is constantly at work uh, trying to take care of the vines, cultivating them, seeing to it that they get nourishment, care, sunlight, water, all those things, so that they will in time uh, bear fruit. And I like to say this, and never forget this, when we get saved by the grace of God, we are not left alone to live the Christian life on it. I thank God that God saves us by his grace. He takes up residence in our heart. And he said, well, you know, how, how do you know that we accept it? Because the Bible says so. And not only that, the evidence of him being in our hearts and lives is the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit that God will produce by his work. We talked about the work of cultivation by the Father. And <clears throat> we have been now talking about abiding in Christ and bearing fruit. We've been talking about, if you will, and have talked about <clears throat> the fact that uh, there is a command in verse 4 to abide in him. The Bible says, Abide in me, and I am you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, and what can he accept you abide in me? This is not a suggestion. It is a command. God knows what is best for us, what will bear fruit in our lives the most, in the most successful way. And folks, we cannot bear fruit as Christian people without abiding in the Lord. He says, Abide in me. And <clears throat> to abide in him means to remain united. Uh, to me or the Lord Jesus Christ by a living faith, not just one we speak of, but one we live by his grace, a life, uh, live a, a life of dependence on the Lord, obedience to him, uh, seeking to imitate his example because we want to be like him, even as God has purposed that we will be like him, and uh, to seek to live by the faith that God has given us through his words. So we're talking about abiding in him walking with him, talking with him, and seeking to be like him. In John 8, <clears throat> verse 31, John 8 and 31, excuse me, <clears throat> verse 30, we'll start in verse 30, and as many, or as he spake these words, John 8 and 30, <clears throat> and as he spake these words, many believed on him. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples, and indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. We cannot abide in Christ without abiding in his word, and to abide is to continue in 
the Word of God. You know, <clears throat> the Bible is not a, a book filled with suggestions for life, but rather, if you will, a, man <clears throat> me, a manual for life. And it is to be taken seriously, it is to be used by the, the, the people of God, the disciples of the Lord to continue in them. Excuse me. Colossians 2, Colossians 2, and verse 6, Colossians 2 and 6, through verse 8, Colossians 2, verses 6 through 8, here the Lord says, in verse 6, as you have therefore received Christ Jesus, the Lord so walking in him. Rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. We have all kinds of philosophies that the world is trying to indoctrinate people in, in the, in the public school educational system. They're pushing philosophies and doctrines and ideas that are contrary to the scripture. We need to be rooted and grounded in the truth of God's word as Christian, you know, particularly as Christian young people who may be having to go to a public school system. You know, don't accept everything that a teacher teaches you in the public school system as if it were the gospel. Any more than you should accept, accept everything you read and hear on the internet as being the gospel. You know, nowadays people speak and, and talk as if, well, if it's on the internet, surely it must be true. Really? I mean, you know, let's not be foolish. Let's not be naive. Just because it's on the internet doesn't make it true. And just because a teacher in a public school tells you that something is true doesn't mean it's true. As a matter of fact, they teach uh, uh, evolution, which is a theory, not a fact. They teach it as if it were fact, and now they have a new telescope. I don't know how many of you noticed this recently. They now have a new telescope that they have put out into, the, out into space that's uh, further away from uh, uh, Earth and may probably never go back, come back to the Earth cannot be serviced, but already that telescope is showing things that astronomers uh, didn't know existed, and it's, it's leading to the disproving of evolution and the Big Bang Theory. I can't remember the name of the telescope, but some kind of, I forget the name, but it's on, it's on, it's on I saw it on a YouTube video. Sure, it must be true. Well, if that's true, that it is disproving the lie of evolution. But see, folks, when people won't accept what the Bible says, they're going to look for some other philosophy or something else to believe. Beware of those things. Be grounded, rooted in the truth of God's word. And God says, sanctify them through thy uh, truth. Thy word is truth. And God has proven it by virtue of history, science, and all kinds of other archaeology. Bears out the truth of God's word. If we needed that, the very, the very conduct of man bears witness to the truth of God's word. God has told us the way man, men are and will behave. And even as we get closer to the coming of the Lord, the Bible says, 
As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it also be in the days when the Son of Man cometh. The Bible says that every imagination of the thoughts of their hearts in, in Jonah's day was only evil continually. And we seem to be getting toward that kind of attitude, that kind of philosophy, that kind of way of thinking. It's borne out in our world. We're commanded to abide in Christ and his word. And remember this, <clears throat> you have to be careful of what you listen to. You know, folks, I don't want you to believe me because I say it. Believe me because God said it. And because God has proven it to be true. Not because I say it. You know, the last thing I want you to do is walk out of this building and say, well, you know, my pastor said that. But what? What does it matter what I say? What matters is what God says. Amen. This is God's word. Not the words of 66 men, but the words of God preserved for us. Amen. We are to abide with 1 John 2 and 3. 1 John 2 and 3. There is a command that to abide in the Lord. In 1 John 2 and 3 here, and hereby we know that we know him, that we keep his commandments. Those who are truly saved are going to be seeking to, to obey the Lord. <clears throat> he that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. <clears throat> but whoso keepeth his, his word, uh, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby we know that we are in him, he that saith he abideth in him uh, on himself also to walk even as he walked. Now Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Folks, God would have us to obey the command to abide in Christ. And then also, <clears throat> let me talk about the necessity of it in John 15 again. John 15. <clears throat> and the verse 1, John 15 and 1. Excuse me, John 15 and verse 4. John 15 and verse 4. Jesus said this, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can he except he abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches, he that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. There is a necessity toward abiding in Christ. There is a command to because let me tell you something, if we were left sometimes to choose to do as we please, we would disobey God. But if we are choosing to do as he pleases, and we ought to as Christians, we'll seek to obey his command to abide in him and understand the necessity of it. You know, the Christian life is Christ in you, the hope of glory. God is working in you and I to make us like the Lord, to bear fruit for uh, the Lord, if you will, in uh, 2 Corinthians 12. 2 Corinthians 12. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 12. <clears throat> and verse 7, lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations that was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. The Lord used Paul very in a, in a large way, a huge way, in the cause of Christ, for the work of the Lord, and yet to work out his purpose of, of him being like Christ, being humble, and to deal with the possibility of pride. See, folks, God knew Paul like we don't. 
You know, sometimes we look at men and imagine them to be things that they're not. No man living, no Christian ever who has ever lived or ever will live is absolutely like Christ without sin. Amen. And he says, uh, well, this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You know, Paul had learned, even as we need to learn, the necessity of, of walking with God, abiding in Christ. If we're going to have any success in the Christian life, it'll not be because even we do everything we imagine is right. Because we'll find if we try to do that even, that we're not right. We need to abide in the Lord in Philippians 1. Philippians 1 and 9. Philippians 1 and 9. <clears throat> and this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve the things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by, as a result, if you will, of abiding, if you will, in Christ, which are by Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. Paul said, I can do all things through Christ, which strengthened me. So we talked about the command of necessity. And then this morning, looking back to John 15, John 15, he said, Preacher, why do we take the time to review? Because it we easily forget. Sometimes even I do. As a matter of fact, the older I get, the more I do. John 15 and 6. Here the Bible says, If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth of the branch, and is withered, and men gather them, and cast them in the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, it shall be none of you. Now we're talking about the prayer of those abiding in Christ, but there is a little word that I want to focus on this morning as, as we run up to this, the subject of prayer. And in verse 6, If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and then gather them and cast them in the fire and they're burned. If you abide in me, this word if, this word if leads to a question as to whether even some who are professing Christians are truly Christians. And if they're not, they cannot, a, a person who is not a Christian cannot abide in Christ. Cannot abide in Christ. Christ does not dwell in his heart by faith, and he cannot abide in him. It's important to understand in some senses that he can very well be speaking of those who are hypocrites. And let me remind you, there's not a church that's ever been in existence that doesn't have a hypocrite. They say, oh, I'm not going to go there because of hypocrites. No, you can go anywhere. You can go anywhere. And to be, a, for someone to have struggles, I want to clarify this. For you to have a problem and a weakness and a struggle doesn't make you a hypocrite. What is, what is a hypocrite defined as? One who pretends to be what he's not. One who has the form of God and is without the power. Who assumes an appearance of piety and virtue when he is destitute of, of true faith and goodness. There is a difference there are times when any, even any good, well-meaning Christian at times can be guilty of pretending to be something that they're not. 
at times. And let me say this, hypocrisy with a Christian isn't acceptable any more than it is acceptable for one who is pretending to be a Christian, for one who is putting on, if you will, the facade of a Christian. You talk about a facade. Now, sometimes you ever seen you go to buildings and, and you see on the, on the front of the building, I mean, almost like a rock wall. Well, if you pay closer attention, it's not a complete rock wall. It is a facade. It has, it gives the look of real rocks that have been put into place, but if you were to peel off the facade, you'll find out it's a fake. As a matter of fact, in some senses, there is a facade here. We don't have full stones, if you will. You, you, you couldn't find it. I'm glad it's not the full thing. I wouldn't hang on the wall. I thank God for it, but I mean, we're talking about a facade, a fake, a, if you will, a, a, a covering for something behind. Folks, a hypocrite is trying to cover, put on a facade of Christianity when there's no substance uh, to it. As a matter of fact, in Job 20 and verse 1, Job 20 and verse 1, <clears throat> sat down for seven days. They sat down and they wept and mourned with him. Then after seven days they began to look and wonder, okay, is he in this position because he's not right with God? God is correcting him? Then answers over oh, the man of five and said, therefore do my thoughts cause me to answer? For this I, I make haste. I have heard the check of my reproach. And you know, again, he acknowledges he's reproaching Job. As if Job was guilty of wrongdoing here. And that's why God brought it down on him. And the spirit of my understanding causeth me to answer. Knowest thou not this of old since man was placed on earth, upon earth, that the triumphing of the wicked is short, the joy of the hypocrite, <clears throat> but for a moment, though his excellencies mount up to the heavens and his head reach of the clouds, yet he shall perish forever, like his own none. They which have seen him shall say, Where is he? He shall fly away as a, a dream and shall not be found. Yea, he shall be chased away as a vision of the night. The eyes also, the eye also which saw him shall see him no more. Neither shall his place any more, be, uh, any more behold him. His children shall ask uh, to please the uh, poor, and his hands shall restore their good. Now here, here uh, uh, this Namathite, if you will, is reproaching Job and basically accusing him of being a hypocrite. Well, we now listen, we know better because the Bible tells us things that these guys didn't understand. Folks, only God can properly and correctly identify the hypocrite. This guy, a friend, is now accusing Job of it. Look at Job 1. Job 1 and verse 1. Job 1 and verse 1. You know, the Bible teaches that we should be careful to avoid any appearance of evil. 
Because sometimes we may appear to be hypocrite because of our behavior. And we may, we may be sending the wrong message because of our behavior. We say one thing and we're doing another. In Job 1 1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was, now this is what God has recorded for us in his word. We have light that Zophar the Namathite did not have. But he should have been, uh, not, he should not have been as quick to, to, to uh, reach out and judge Job as if he were a hypocrite. Somehow he, that he was somehow better. There was a man of the, of the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright, one that feared God to shoot evil. Not perfect in the sense without sin, but a complete mature Christian. Living for God. He hated, the word hate is to, issue is to hate, it's to, it's to stay away from it. Look at verse 8. And the Lord said unto Satan, even in heaven itself, the Lord himself boasted of Job before Satan. Hast thou considered my servant Job, in verse 8, that there is none like him in the earth, but perfect, and an upright man, one that feareth God, and sheweth evil. Several times the Lord addresses uh, uh, Satan and the angels of heaven concerning the testimony of Job, and then here's Zophar the Naamathite who's saying, you know what? You're a hypocrite. I mean, how? why else is all this stuff happening to you? Not maybe understanding that uh, we must all through much tribulation, tribulation enter the kingdom of heaven. And that God is always trying and testing our faith. He is, as the Bible says, and all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. And sometimes God will take us through deep water, take us through the furnace to try to purge away some problems and some draws in our lives. Obviously, and God allowed Job to go through what he was going through because Job was not without sin. He was working out his purpose. Molding and shaping his life, bearing, helping Job to bear fruit for the Lord. That yet there were those that accused him falsely of being a hypocrite. Look at Matthew chapter seven. Matthew chapter seven, verse one. Matthew seven and one. Jesus said, giving instruction, says, Job, he says, Judge not, that you be not judged, for with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye have needed shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say unto thy, unto thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, the beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam uh, out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Now he's not saying don't judge, but he is saying be careful of hypocritical judgment. You know, there are times in, in the life, all human lives, where we have to make judgments, and we strive to make judgments according to that which is true. Well, we have truth here. But sometimes, folks, we need to be careful that as we look at situations or we look at people, to be careful that we judge righteously or rightly. You know, our court system should is based upon the premise that we are innocent until proven guilty beyond a shadow of a doubt. 
In our world today, many are judged according to what the media spews out. You know, the media will put out and pronounce judgment on people long before they've been proven to be guilty of those kinds of things. You need to be careful of that. John 7 and 20. John 7 and 20. John 7 and 20. The people answered and said, that was the devil. Who goeth about to kill me? You know what? They're accusing God of, of the idea that he doesn't know. Now, they would not accept Jesus Christ as God in the flesh. The Christ, the Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us. They would not accept him in that. And so they treated him as if he were a mere man. And yet they would have to learn and would, you know, maybe they would accept him. He's trying to teach them, listen, I'm God. And Jesus answered and said unto them, I have done one work and you marvel. Moses therefore gave unto you circumcision, not because it is of Moses, but of the fathers, and he on the Sabbath day circumcised a man. If a man on the Sabbath day receives circumcision, that the law of Moses should not be broken, are ye angry at me because I have made a man every whit whole on the Sabbath day? I mean, <clears throat> talk about hypocrisy. <laughs> These guys would do, uh, do things on the Sabbath day and make excuse for it and then condemn Christ for doing good on the Sabbath day. There was no injunction in the law of God for them not to be able to do that which was good and right and helpful. And what was Christ doing? Healing people. Helping people. Verse 24, judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. You know, folks, even in, a, in making an application of the law for sentencing people, we need to understand and hopefully arrive at the truth before we pass judgment on those who've been judged to be guilty. You know, the, the death penalty was, it was established by God. We see it through Israel. And you know what? <clears throat> there was a way in which the, judge, uh, the, the death penalty was to be applied. Not arbitrarily, but they, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, confirmed firm witnesses, could someone be judged to be guilty of death. And so it should be even in our day. Now, I'm not for filling up our jails with a bunch of criminals and feeding them for the rest of their life. But you know what? We have to be careful of the application of the death penalty. In Matthew 15. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh, alone can identify those who are hypocrites, those who have the, the mark of if above them. <clears throat> he says in verse 7, ye hypocrites, well did Zionists prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines and commandments of men. And sometimes people you know, sometimes we can live with people, we can know people, 
in a close intimate relationship, and I'll tell you, in a, in a family relationship, what have you, and you can have your doubts as to whether there's a genuine love. You know, anybody say I'm Christian. Everybody says I'm Christian. A lot of people say they're Christian. Are they all Christian because they say they're Christian? No. There is an if hanging over the head of many who profess it. And if they were to stand before God, they would stand before God not with confidence, but condemnation. And it's not what the Lord wants. He wants all men to stand before him in confidence without condemnation. In Matthew 16 and 1. Repeatedly, our Lord Jesus Christ as God identified the hypocrisy, called it what it was to those particularly in leadership. Religious leadership among the Jews. Pharisees in verse 1 also with the Sadducees came and tempting him and desired him, tempting, desired him that he would show them a sign from heaven. Now, you know what? We, we wouldn't know maybe why they would come to him, but God would know. He answered and said unto them, When it is evening, ye say it will be fair winter, for the sky is red. In the morning it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and lowering. O ye hypocrites, you can discern the, the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulter, adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given unto them but the sign of the prophet Jonas, the prophet Jonas, and he left them and departed. Now, <clears throat> Christ could call them that because he knew what they really were. He knew the thoughts of their hearts. He knew the incants. He knew what was going on. Bible says that all things are naked and open to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And folks, we'll never hide anything from God. And you, you know, there may be some in this room today who do not believe that God knows them in a way that we don't know them. And that one day when they stand before God, God in Christ will judge them rightly because he will know them for what they really are and have. You know, no one is going to judge you based upon what I say. God will judge you and I based upon what he says and what he knows. Amen? Amen. Matthew 22. It's amazing how many times the Lord used the word hypocrite in relationship to religious people, particularly those in religious leadership. In Matthew 22 and 15, Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him this talk. And they sent unto him the, the, their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Master, we know, uh, we know that thou art true and teachest of the way of God and truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of man. I understand some of what they said were true. It was true, but they were using flattery to entangle him, to draw him in. And, you know, trip him up. Lay a net before his feet to trip him up so they could find fault with him. And then he says, and they say, so, King, tell us therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness. Again, why? Because he's God. He knew what was going on. <clears throat> and said, why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? 
Show me the truth of money. And they brought him a penny. And he said unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? And they say unto him, Caesar's. Then saith he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. When they had heard these words, they marveled. And that looked, you know, so, they, couldn't, they couldn't catch him. They couldn't catch him doing anything wrong because he never did anything wrong. You, I've often wondered, maybe you haven't wondered, I've often wondered what it must have been like to grow up in the, in the home of Jesus. Yeah. Now, he had other brothers and sisters that were born after him through uh, Joseph and Mary. The kid was perfect. How infuriating. You know, sometimes sisters will treat each other like, well, I'm more perfect or beautiful than you are. Another, that could be a judgment call. <laughs> Ask mom. Siblings do that with each other. Competition, comparison. And you're saying, no, we never did that. We never did that. I have one brother. I did that. <laughs> Didn't work out too well. Matthew 23 and 15, excuse me, Matthew 23 and 13. Now Christ is going to nail it down, nail down the problem. But woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, uh, for you neither go in yourselves, neither suffer you them that are entering to go in. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer, therefore you shall receive the greater damnation. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you come to see a lamb and make one proselyte, and when it is made, you make him twofold more the child of hell than yourself. Now you understand basically? You're not, you're not saved. You don't know me. You're a hypocrite. You're a liar. You're pretending to be something that you're not. <clears throat> Look, if you will, to verse uh, <clears throat> 23. Bible says, Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites. You pay tithes of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the way your manners of the law. Judgment, mercy, and faith, these ought you to have done, not to leave the other undone. You blind guides which straighten a gnat and swallow a camel. I mean, you see that in, the, in their judgments of Christ. Well, now, you didn't keep the Sabbath day. Well, neither today. And what Christ did was not a violation of the Sabbath. He says that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And he sought to, uh, to do good on the Sabbath day. It wasn't what the Lord wanted, but anyway, let's read on. He says in verse 25, What would you scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites? For you may clean the outside of the cup of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisees, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean, be clean also. What would you scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites? For you are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead man's bones, of dead man's bones of all uncleanness. Even so ye all also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Oh, it describes Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous, and say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them and the blood of the prophets. He says here, therefore, he says, wherefore be a witness, ye to be witnesses unto yourselves that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets, filling up then the measure of your fathers. And then he says here, ye serpents and generation of vipers, how can he escape the damnation of hell? 
You know, uh, false religion, false faces, hypocrisy isn't going to bring anyone to the right place. <clears throat> Job 13. Job 13. And verse 15. Job 13 and 15. Here Jesus, or here Job says, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. I will maintain mine own ways before him. He also shall be my salvation, for hypocrites shall not come before him. You know, Job understood and believed that which was right about him. He knew he wasn't a hypocrite. He knew it in Matthew, excuse me, Mark 9. Mark 9. Actually, Job 27 and 1. Job 27 and 1. Sorry about that. Job 27 and 1. The voices of children. Job 27 and 1. Moreover, Job continued with this parable, As God liveth, who hath taken away my judgment, and the Almighty who hath vexed my soul all the while, all the while my breath is in me, and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils. My lips shall not speak wickedness, my tongue, nor my tongue utter deceit. God forbid that I should justify you till I die, I will not remove my integrity from me. My righteousness I hold fast, and will not let... Uh, uh, let it go. My heart shall not reproach me so long as I live. Let me, my enemy be as the wicked, and he that rises up against me as the unrighteous. For what is the hope of the hypocrite, though he hath gained, when God taketh away his soul? See, Job spoke with confidence because he knew he wasn't a hypocrite. He wasn't saying, I'm perfect, but he was defending himself against the charge of hypocrisy. Mark chapter 9. Mark 9. What is the hope of a hypocrite? There is no hope without salvation. In Mark 9, look at verse 41. For whosoever shall give you a cup of water, Mark 9 and 41, and in my name, because ye belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were cast into the sea. If I had offended thee, cut it off, it was better for thee to enter the life name than having two hands to go into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. Where the worm dieth not, the fire is not quenched. I'll read the entire passage. Understand this. Where will the hypocrites end be? Hell and then the lake of fire. After the judgment of Almighty now Christ is speaking about prayer, prayer and fruitfulness, the fruitfulness of God's people in prayer. When he begins, he begins it again with the matter of if. Again, let me ask you this question this morning. Are you truly saved by the grace of God? You don't want to be wrong on this matter. You don't want to imagine that you can play the hypocrite and get away with it. Amen. Let's pray.